New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. You're listening to a New Dimensions Archive Edition, recorded in 2001. The Declaration of Independence is a profoundly spiritual document. The principles upon which the United States of America was founded are rooted deeply within the human soul. We live at a time when it's important to recover the founding vision of America, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Inalienable means it cannot be taken away. These rights are inherent to each human being. Our guest is scholar Jacob Needleman, professor of religion and philosophy at San Francisco State University. He's the author of numerous books, including a little book on love, the best-selling Money and the Meaning of Life, Time and the Soul, and the American soul, rediscovering the wisdom of the founders. Join us for the next hour as we revisit America's founding principles and their relevance to contemporary times with our guest, Jacob Needleman. My name is Michael Toms. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jerry, welcome. Thank you. I'm very glad to be with you. Good to be with you. One of the things you wrote in American Soul, you wrote, materialism is a disease of the mind, starved for ideas. I love that phrase. Materialism is a disease of the mind, starved for ideas. Tell us about that. Well, it's a kind of, um, we've talked about this before in other contexts, but there's a kind of poverty of our culture. We're very rich in things. We're very poor in uh, conditions that enable people to inquire and search for ultimate meaning. Um, is what I've been called in the past a kind of metaphysical repression. This, this part of the mind, this part of the heart, part of the human psyche, which is an essential part of our nature more central to us than our biological elements, which is Plato called Eros, which we've spoken about. Yes. This is the yearning to participate and understand that which is greater than myself. This is a part of the human psyche, and Eros has not been allowed to flourish in the culture. It's been overwhelmed in recent decades, in our contemporary time. And one of the great foods of that 
for that part of ourselves are great philosophical, spiritual ideas. Not just clever concepts, not just explanatory hypotheses, but ideas which resonate with something far greater than us, which invite us not just to figure things out, but which touch a part of us which makes us quiet inside and begin to feel the sense of the sacred and wish to understand it and reflect and think in that way, think from the heart and the mind together. And so those ideas have been part of great cultures and great civilizations. And they were at one time part of America too, I think. But they've gone out of fashion, they've gone out to the margin. And uh, when, that, when people do not feel, when many people, as the many, many people do not feel invited or quickened or called to great ideas that speak to them, they have to turn somewhere for, for life, for vitality, and if they, they winds up turning to material things and objects and pleasures and pain and pleasures of the ego and of the psyche, psychological materialism, if you want. And that's, that's what I mean, and I, I feel that uh, America needs to bring that back into the culture. There is a feeling, a sense, what many of us have, that America, American life is drifting. This is a powerful, enormous uh, world, America. Uh, but that it's, it, it's drifting toward this, what we just spoke of, this materialism, this um, meaningless tempo and speed and acquisition and business and money and doing very successful things in all those areas. But no culture can survive very, go very long without feeling the lack of when they have that, when, when there is not the spiritual dimension in it in some way or other, it can't go very far. People can't survive very long. There is a kind of hunger for the meaning of our own culture, our own country, our own society. And there's been a lot of uh, criticism of America, a lot of, and some of it very justified, and a lot of American bashing within our country, as well as that, like a lot of superficiality, a lot of triviality, a lot of relativism, a lot of fractioning of ethnic and social classes, some of it very justified. And, and where do you turn for vision, you know, in my book, I have the epigram at the beginning, if it's from the book of Proverbs, where there is no vision, the people perish. And we have in our own, still have, as Americans, we still have these people in our psyche that are like symbols, are like heroes that have some meaning in us, and we don't know what they mean. They're there. Lincoln is there. Adams is there. But Adams is now coming there. He wasn't there much before. Yes, right. But Jefferson is still there, even with all the Washington and, the, and, and all the great figures and all the great events, like the Constitutional Convention, which is an, kind of a miracle what happened there. These things are in us, but they don't. They, they resonate, but we don't know what they mean. That phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the Declaration of Independence, and the opening, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and you wrote that... Uh, no democracy is possible. The pursuit of ha has no the pursuit of happiness has nothing to do with pursuing consumer items. Absolutely, that has and somehow I think we've gotten it confused. Well, he has completely confused, and uh, we know that it doesn't have to do with that. But yes. what else is there? And yes, we're right. looking what else for is there? right. Yes. Of course we know that. Nobody, if you said it to almost anybody, unless you're a complete moron, I mean, happiness means having a new video and a new this. And that, they would say, No, I know, but well, where else is it? Where do you find it? 
And so going back to Jefferson, and what I'm trying to do is to, to offer some hope of retelling the story of America in a way that really resonates to the spiritual dimension in us and not so much to the old myths, the old stories which a lot of us are pushing aside, you know, that they don't. There's been a lot of criticism, a lot of um, cynicism about our heroes, our cultural heroes, Jefferson, for example, and others. Um, and they need to be revived, but in a way that respects the adult need for real meaning. You wrote about remythologizing exactly. our founding. Remythologizing. Remythologizing. Not only our, our sources in the, in the founding of America, but also to remythologize our, the crimes of America as well, the things where we have gone very wrong, very astray. So how do we do that? How do we remythologize the crimes of America? Well, if you take something like slavery... Yes. And the killing of the American Indians. Yes. Those are the two that I concentrate on in the yes. book. Yes. You just go into that story of slavery as much as you can. And I happen to be concentrating on Frederick Douglass. On this, yes. This thing. And you begin to feel the horror of slavery. You begin to feel a little bit. It's not just a word. You know, oh, it's a word, slavery. Oh, it's wrong. I know it was bad, really bad. we got to fix that up. You know? That's fine, that's fine. But sometimes you're not really feeling, really feeling what it means. You may be shocked, you may be upset, you may be angry, but to really feel the horror of denigrating and dehumanizing and animalizing a human race like that, uh, to feel that, begin to feel that, you begin to feel something beyond outrage. You begin to feel something, you know, the sorrow of what you, of something approaching deep metaphysical grief and sorrow that this I as part of this country. Yes. And then if you take it a little further, like the great traditions and spiritual philosophers tell us, you begin to feel that you yourself could have been guilty of that. It's one thing deeply to sympathize with the victim. That's very, very painful and necessary. It's another thing to feel that you are also the perpetrator. And when you begin to feel that, and not just and not just deny it or feel kind of such guilt that you've got to do something quickly about it, but you begin to feel what is called real remorse. And that you bow your head in remorse. That is, that is already spiritualizes the thing. It's, and from that feeling, that deep, very deep, profound feeling of remorse of, that touches what is called uh, real conscience, out of that genuine action can appear that is really transformative. That's, that's one way. And that I think you have to feel with the Indian, with, with American Indian, with the slavery, and with other things too, with, with Vietnam, with all kinds of things. We've never really owned it. We're admitting it, but we're not really deeply experiencing it. So at the same time, we experience the greatness of America. At the same time, we have to experience the failure, but equally deeply. And that is the quintessential human transformative step forward. That is the re-mythologizing. It's interesting how myths unfold. I remember being... Uh, about 10 years ago at Presidio Hospital, when it was a hospital in the Presidio, visiting my mother who was at Letterman Hospital. And I was in the waiting room, and I picked up a newspaper, happened to be the Army Weekly, the weekly newspaper the Army publishes. And on the cover of this was this picture of uh, a soldier in camouflage 
uh, in the jungle and a big head, banner headline across it, Indian country. And this soldier happened to be down in Latin America. And the banner was Indian country. And this was like 1990. And the mythology, and it's like, we've never owned what we've done to the Indians. And they, so we're still, in some ways, we were still killing, we're still killing Indians. Mm -hmm. in, in, it's, in some, it's like, I think of the Iraqi war. One of the things I noticed was how similar Iraqis look to Native Americans. Mm. Very similar. Interesting. It's interesting to notice. I thought it was Afghanis look like Afghanis, exactly. Uh, Tibetan people of color, people of different color than us. Well, it's not just color, but the whole facial exactly facial, facial everything. Yes. So somehow I think that goes back to somehow that we've never really owned but as a people. But you see, as, as a, a people, never. See, this is what I mean by remythologizing it. Do we ever really, as individuals, how, what does it mean to really own our failures as well as to be touched and given great hope by our potential greatness, our potential divinity, and our actual uh, distance or criminal uh, distance from the divinity? Both those two are necessary. If you go yes. too much in one direction, yes. it's hopeless, it's despair. If you go too much in the other direction, it's fantasy and self-aggrandizement. But even to, own, to have the, de the depth of feeling of my own lack of being is very difficult right. for them to have. So I'm saying the country itself in some way needs to be touched by that. So that's what I mean. That's a meaning of the Indian and the slavery issues yes. that has never been, saying, never been put out before. Yes. We all feel guilt that's coming up, but guilt is not as deep as remorse. I'm speaking with Jacob Needleman, author of The American Soul. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. of the American Soul. Jerry, you grew up in Philadelphia. Yes, I did. Yeah. So Philadelphia was impactful in your life. Oh, yes. Philadelphia has become a personal symbol for me. That's yeah. Very much so. I Tell mean. us about Philadelphia. You got a few hours? Yeah, sure. You got all <laughs> no, the time no. in the world. Now, Philadelphia was, you know, as a kid, <clears throat> you're brought up in Philadelphia, and that's the cradle of liberty, you know, that's the city of brotherly love, that's where America, in some respects, Boston and, and Philadelphia is where it all began. And uh, you hear all this stuff, I mean, you're a kid about American history, and it's... Uh, and the Liberty Bell, and you go to visit the Franklin Institute, and you see, and you see William Penn at the top of City Hall, and 
you have all the things where Washington and Franklin and all the people did everything, and it's incredibly boring. I was just bored to death by American history and by all the stuff they tried to tell us. It, with these men in powdered wigs and buckled shoes. But I loved America. And something about America, the flag, the Pledge of Allegiance to the, the, Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, remember, I remember the, how, the way of the awed feeling of the flag, of the American flag, and if it touched the ground, you were, it was a crime beyond redemption. We, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, you know, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty, you know, or as we say as kids, one nation invisible, but nation indivisible. And, uh, and that was it. And you sat down, and that was a great feeling because I was standing there as a little, yeah, young kid every day in school, you did that. Yes. And one time they changed the, for the end school, there was an official change of what you're supposed to do. I pledge allegiance to the flag. For some reason, that made it all superficial, and I so just couldn't do it. You're making a motion outward, well, out your outward. body. Some clever yeah. person said, why don't we do it that way? Whereas this was a meditative throughout the whole thing. I really felt it's it inner, inner, hand inner, on your heart. Hand yes. on your heart. But to go like that, I wasn't interested. I was, the flag wasn't the thing, really. It was, I pledge allegiance to truth. I pledge allegiance to goodness. I mean, you felt that. To the there. values. To yeah, the values, yeah. Yes. Wasn't it some stupid flag? Yes. The flag symbolized it. Yeah, the flag symbolized it. Yes. So that was a, a wonderful event. I mean, it's a shocking event to me. I couldn't figure out why. I was just a kid. Why it no longer meant much to me. So Philadelphia, but America was something else again. America was not Phil official Philadelphia. Official mm -hmm. Philadelphia yes. became for me over the years a symbol of what is dreary and bourgeois and boring in human life. But but going to the Franklin Institute, which was a place, the first science museum in America, and where you pressed buttons and got into, did things that actually happened, and particularly going into the woods, which Philadelphia has these wonderful wild parks. And so I used to go into the woods. Does anybody here know Philadelphia? Philadelphia is really, the Wissahickon is a creek that runs through what's called Fairmount Park. It's a wild and beautiful yes. park with a yeah, but this is really a this is wild. This, this is really wild. It can be within that's a beautiful yes. creek. Very, and I had no idea then, but I was just drawn to that area and just loved. And I felt this was, I didn't give it any names like America. It just was a sense of nature and feeling of wonder and, and uh, loving the sense that America was somehow on God was acting through America, not in any jingoistic sense. I was, it was not the point. It was just that, it was, and then my father would show me Abraham Lincoln and tell me stories of Lincoln, which touched me. And when, particularly when I saw the man's face, yes. Lincoln's face was to me a, something I could, had no words for it, but yes. it was a man of presence and being. And so only later, and I, and I disliked American history because it was just dull. But uh, the years went by, and then later on, I was writing about all the other traditions and religions, Buddhism, Eastern religions and philosophy and how they're in modern science and yes. all the things we've talked about over yes. the years. Then I, because, I, I, let me go on with this because this is a, oh, I've been trying to write books that try to make a bridge between spiritual tradition in this deepest sense and modern cultural situations and problems and issues to really make a bridge that shows where the ancient great knowledge of the wisdom tradition can really throw real light 
but really help us understand our present condition, referring it to a great scale of ideas. Yes. And so I've written about all these things we've talked about, like psychiatry and science and money and time and time and relationships and love. About 10 or 12 years ago, I had the idea, after talking to some friends whom we all know, why not America? And in a way, it was a daunting thing. So when did that idea occur to you? 12 years ago. 12 11, years 12 ago. ago. Uh-huh. A long time ago. It's interesting. It's, I mean, to have this book coming out right now, now is incredible. after the events of September 11th, 2001. Yeah. It's kind I'm, of amazing. It's amazing. I'm not used to writing timely books. <laughs> or timeless books. Or timeless, maybe, <laughs> but not timely. But yeah, the cover coming out now is a stunning thing to me. Yes. So uh, this book started uh, 11 years ago, and I put it down twice to write uh, a book on time, Time and the Soul, and the book on love, a little book on love, and kept picking it up and putting it down. You know, I feel like these energies, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, Adams, these energies of the founding of this nation, they seem to want to come through now. I think so. They really are coming through in all kinds of different ways. Oh, yeah. You feel that? I do. People, there has been a lot of t- criticism, a lot of people writing and and um, and chopping down the heroes of America, the symbols. You know, Washington was over there, Jefferson was that, how he did all that. And, and, and I think that's a mistake. Yes. I think that something else wants to come through. And yes. Of course they were just human beings. Yeah, of human course beings. they made and, mistakes. Yes, they made mistakes. But what was coming through, that's exactly what you say. What was coming through them in that period, in that time, yes. was phenomenal. When you really look at it and think about what was going on then, yeah. that these people, they actually came up with a totally new and original form of government. Yeah. I mean, it's quite amazing that they were, I mean, this, you know, Really? This is what I call the book. The, the, this is the great art form of America, is the Constitution yes. and government. We, other, other countries, other cultures have produced great art and music, greater than we have, but nothing. The Constitution is our cathedral. Reading one of John Adams' letters to Abigail in the book Adams, where he's saying to her, he's in Philadelphia, and they're in the middle of drafting the Declaration of Independence, and he's saying, he's writing to Abigail saying, but the work that we're doing here is for the millions here and for the millions and millions to come. Yeah. There was a consciousness of Absolutely. the future, a consciousness that they were doing something for 200, 300 years hence, That's that right. they were doing something that had enormous impact in the present and in the future. They had a consciousness of the history they were in the middle of, yeah. which is very rare. Yeah. Very rare. All well, the, and so many of them had it. Well, it, it's Jefferson rare. Jefferson had it. Washington it, had it. It's rare that in, that they were right about it. A lot of people have started enterprising. This is for history, and it turned out to be nothing. Yes. But this, they were absolutely right. Yes. The world, you said, was they were prescient. They had a prescience. Yeah. So, one of the words that comes up a lot when you go back to the founding of this nation is the word reason. And, of course, in the Age of Enlightenment, the 1600s, the 1600s, 1700s, Age of Enlightenment, and reason. And the way we understand reason now is very different I think so. than the way they were using reason then. And you wrote about this. Tell yeah. us about reason. Yeah. They didn't—I don't think the best of them, the deepest of them, that includes Jefferson and, 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 and Washington, too, and many others— uh, meant by reason this calculating intellectuality 
and comparative, comparing ideas and combining impressions and making new explanatory hypotheses and, and analyzing and translating it, translating it into mathematical applications and, and uh, pragmatic usages. Reason meant a, a vision of reality that emanates from a deeper part of our nature, which is the mind, not just the, the frontal part of the brain that makes computer acts like a computer. And to have access to that, to let that be your God. Reason was connected to the heart as well as the mind. So uh, when William Penn, for example, the, when the Quakers speak of consulting the inner Christ, and when the early American, American founders of the American nation speak of the freedom to search for reason, to, be, to, to open to the reason within one, they're not so far apart. So there, it's a profounder, it's a profound sense of an intellectual power within us that can contact reality, the depths of reality in, in what it is and in its goodness and in its values as well. It has got, that idea has gotten very shallow and lost. And it's not that they were, we think the Enlightenment, and maybe many of the people in the so-called, in the Enlightenment were getting to be more just scientific and just uh, superficially and thinking about reason is just science, cold, analytic, objective in the, in the superficial sense, uh, which we justly criticize now as, as being with heartless and being the false objectivity and turning to a kind of relativism. But that's not what they meant by reason. Franklin, when he talked about reason, he didn't mean something like that. He meant a power within the mind and the heart together that saw things as they are and saw the good as it is. Yes. And so that, that I think, is the, the, the deeper meaning of the Enlightenment. It's, but it's not what we take it to be now. Franklin was an interesting man. Oh, he's he incredible. Of, he was kind of the senior, the senior of uh, those guys. He was kind of the senior. In some ways, he was the grandfather because he had a few years on Adams and certainly on Jefferson, yeah. even on Washington. He's a great figure. I mean, you know, you think... When you're growing up, or you're taking, you're beginning interest in Franklin, he seems to be dubious. I mean, he was a businessman, and he, he he schemed, and he was into all kinds of things. He was very inventive. Nobody denies him that. Uh, and then he played around a lot, apparently. And he was a clever in spy. Paris, he in was Paris. quite the ladies' man. Yeah, we don't know. We, he <laughs> he was in and out of boudoirs, and uh, I mean, he was. Uh, and he was revered as in Europe and yes. Paris, and he's revered here too. So you figure, well, this guy, okay, he is interesting, but he's no, you know, he's no spiritually not too interesting. That's what, you, what I used to think. He was a businessman. Yes. But I think he's much more than that, and he, he can symbolize much more than that. I mean, as I said in the book, the man played with lightning. I mean, we take when you're growing up as a kid, it gets boring. You know, Franklin went out there and held up the, the kite, and the lightning came down. So, okay, big deal. But then, you, if you, you know, you you get free of that cliche, and you go out and you look at a storm, you look at lightning, and say, "Holy hey. shit! What did he do here? <laughs> you know, this is uh, this is no. This guy was no. He was no slouch. Yeah, really, he was pretty, pretty playing with fire. Pretty gutsy." And uh, he and he had an inner life, and he was acquainted with all the mystical communities, which I also am very interested in the book. Yes, and particularly this one, Ephrata, Ephrata in, yeah. in Pennsylvania. And he so he knew about the inner world. He knew about the inner life. He yeah. didn't. He was not a sectarian religious in any way. He was wanted to be free of dogmatic religion. Thank God. 
He was also the one that got really interested in the Iroquois. Yeah. And how yeah, they how yeah. they governed. He went up there and he looked at it and he said to them, if, if these people can do it, why can't we? You know? Right. And he learned a lot from them, a lot. And there's still a dispute how just how much of the Iroquois, which I deal with quite a bit in the book, how much the Iroquois really influenced the formation of the Constitution. There's enough there to really warrant much more serious research into the effect. Of course, the whole effect, it's another story, of the American Indian on our psyche is yeah. enormous. But no, Franklin is, becomes to me the symbol of mythologizing America, the symbol of the, of the man or the human being who searches for knowledge in two worlds, the inner world and the outer world together. And that's, a, I think, a very valid symbol. Well, let's go into the Iroquois in a moment. I'm yeah. speaking with Jacob Needleman, author of The American Soul. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Listening to a New Dimensions Archive Edition, recorded in 2001. I wanted to talk go more into the Iroquois Confederacy and how they influenced uh, the creation of the Declaration of Independence, Constitution, Bill of Rights. So, what do you what do you see? Well, I don't know historically. I've read some of the historical studies. Franklin was there. There was this conference in Albany in, 18, in 1754, which uh, that they were making recommendations to. Two Americans, uh, the Indians were, to join like we are. They had this thing of many arrows which won't break, you know. And, so, and they had their confederacy. So I don't know historically. It's hard for me as a—I'm not a, a historian as such to know just exactly if there was direct influence. I think there was some. Some kind, but there's other things that were influencing the formation of the Constitution. Many, many things, which led to something very original. However, there was the ancient antiquity, the laws of antiquity, ancient Rome, and particularly where the, which was very influential. Our our founders studied the classics very, very carefully. Um, you know, they studied the, uh, particularly Rome was of great interest in the teaching of Rome, and there yes. was a lot of other things that influenced. Uh, the Constitution with the, the American Indian was there, strongly influencing it. But what is striking about the uh, Iroquois, you don't have to make decisions about what in fact influenced, but you, to see that they had a confederacy and a way of government that was very much like our own and deeply metaphysical and spiritual as well as very practical and to see that it, its roots were in a great teaching about the universe and human nature that is what's exciting. You know, and the two it, things work together. Absolutely, because in the, in, the, in, my, in the book, I just try to, to indicate the level of culture of the Iroquois and therefore of the American Indian in general, and therefore to help the reader feel the, uh, the scale of what, it, what kind of a world it was that they had and therefore what we destroyed. I mean, uh, they had a, a teaching about the universe and human nature that is... Is easily the equal of our own Judeo-Christian great teaching. loss, uh, and it's it's the loss that happens when with indigenous cultures, as we go in with globalization, democ you know capitalistic democracy, and what we do, what, how we change the culture and the richness of the culture that's there. And I think it was Jung that said, you know, 
take away a, a people's stories and you take away their hope. Yeah. No, the stories are very... Take their stories away. And, you know, just... and with the Indian especially, the story is the principal way of communicating the teachings. Yes. Um, Many indigenous cultures are based course, on stories. Of course. But this uh, this story that the creation, there's a, a great creation story in the Iroquois, as there are in the Navajo and the Hopi and all kinds. Yes. But this is, a, and it's vast and it's, to, it's all oral. So you can't say this is the way, this is not this way, this guy told it this way. That, but the great teachers of the, would, would tell the story. And, the, and I, this story of the creation of the world and the creation of human beings is really awesome about this being called, I can't translate these words very well, but the, the God called, he holds the sky with both, he grasps the sky with both hands, which is his name, which means he's going to hold on to the sky and no matter what, which means he's going to remember that he comes from God and he comes from, has a lot of meaning. Anyway, this is a great story of two brothers and two forces within a human being and how the universe and how human beings were created out of these forces. And out of that, and that exists in one place, which I found. It's not so hard to find. And then, out of, then there's this other story about how the laws and the rules of the Constitution of the Iroquois Confederacy were created by this great figure, mythic figure called uh, Deganawida, which is translated as the great, is called, known as the great peacemaker. And I was able, just by, like, just by chance, I saw, I saw that these two definitely go together. That's no great insight. But putting them together into one great story of how the laws of the Confederacy and the meaning of peace, what it means, peace means in the American Indian, yes. how that the cosmic dimensions of, and therefore the great inner vision and inner understanding, spiritual vision that's needed to create a real government. Nobody thinks of government in those terms anymore. Right. You can't yes. create a real social order without a mystical, deep mystical, spiritual vision of what man is, what human beings are. And that's really what I, one of the things I wanted to show. In that. And it's a terrific, to me, it's a very moving story about Hiawatha, which is not the Hiawatha not of Longfellow. Hiawatha of Longfellow. But the, this man, the great peacemaker in his stone canoe, and oh, it's just <laughs> to blows you away yeah. about the nature and the horror and the sorrow that they have to go through in facing this evil wizard uh, who turns out to be the great leader eventually when he's transformed by... I mean, I'm not very coherent now, but I guarantee you it is a great story. And out of that comes the formation of the Iroquois, which was a very solid, serious, practical. And they had things like they had the equivalent of uh, the separation of powers. They had the, um, the leaders, uh, the rulers were chosen by, this is one thing the American founders did not adopt. They, uh, the leaders were chosen by the, the elder women. And uh, the women were the real power there, yes. who chose the the people who actually became the chiefs and the leaders, yes. and they passed. They were like a a witness on everything that happened there. And anyhow, they had that kind of uh, supreme court kind of thing. They had a separation of powers. They had a way of electing, but also they had rules and principles of which you would, of course, be very very deeply interested in, and all of you would be of listening to each other when you present your views. In council. In council. The way the council was conducted is really remarkable. For example, you know, we know we've heard about some of these things, but uh, and some of them I've heard of is that when somebody disagrees with you, you 
and you, you probably tried this kind of an exercise yourself, is that, uh, and I don't know if this was this Iroquois, or so, but I know it was in the Indian tradition, that you had to be able to state their view in so fairly and accurately that they would say that that is a fair statement of my view before you were allowed to speak your disagreement. And then they, when they answered you back, you had to state my view in such a way that I could say that's a fair statement of my view. Have you ever tried that when you're really disagreeing? It is, it is miraculous. Then another thing in the, in the council, and again, I'm not sure it was in this Iroquois thing, was that you had a council and people and views were being presented. This was this is a really a hard one, but a beautiful one. Everyone who speaks has to summarize what everybody else has said up to their speaking before they can speak. That means you've really got to pay attention. Now, I don't see that happening in the Senate or the Congress or anything, but that would be, if you ever tried that, it's extraordinarily interesting. So they had a whole metaphysics of communication and listening, which is what we're talking about here. Yes. yes. So there is what we destroyed, and we need to understand and bow our heads when we, when we see that. Yes. So let's move from the Iroquois to uh, from Benjamin Franklin to George Washington. Uh, that was the biggest surprise for me. Why? I started the book, I think, look, I'm going to write about the people I really find interesting and Lincoln and Jefferson and uh, Franklin to some extent and the Constitution, but Washington, you know, well, I, I had this picture of him, mm. you know, it's like every, like a lot of people have, a man who's a colorless, priggish guy with a bad teeth and chopped down the cherry tree, you know, all that mm -hmm. stuff. Yes. He is terrific. He is really interesting, both in himself and as a symbol. He really is a remarkable yes. man of great presence, what he did and what he, what he becomes a symbol of, if you really look at Washington's life, is of the, the act, the ability of a man of great power exercising his power by letting it go, by stepping down. He gives up his, at the end of the Revolutionary War, it's very clear, he could have been king of America. There was no question about that. Nobody, everybody revered him, and all he had to do was take it, and it was his. Yes. And he, he said, no, I'm going back to my... Back to Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon and all that. And then uh, it's like the legend that Gary Wills writes a book, beautiful book about him called Cincinnatus, which is a Roman legend about a man who great, comes out to help his country, then renounces his power and goes back. But this was really this happened, was, this was happened, and yeah. it was stunning. And the it world was, noticed. The world noticed that everyone just couldn't believe. And then it happened again at the end of, toward the end of the second presidency, second term of president, yes. when no question he could have gone on and on and on. Nobody would have, the, the fourth, the second term was over, he could have been elected as long as he lived. And he decided not to run because he wanted the election to take place without him being the one they're voting for, but while he was still alive. Yes. And, of course, if he had died in office, it might have looked like the, the president was going to be a king or something like that. And, and it set the tone. It set for, the tone for set the, the whole the tone for 150 years. It wasn't yeah. until Franklin Delano Roosevelt ran for third term. Yeah. That the, he was the first president to go but beyond it, two terms. And even beyond, even through Franklin Roosevelt, it set the term of the limits of the presidency. And then we as, came back to the two terms, which Washington set. Yeah, but it's not just the terms. It's I just the, the office of the presidency itself. It's a very remarkable office. It's a remarkable meeting with a combination of incredible power and incredible limitations. And 
that is something unique, and that was Washington's gift that he, he gave. Sorry, but he becomes a kind of almost like a Taoist sage because of the way he, he steps back rather than grabbing. Yes. And very few people in power have ever done that. And so I started writing about Washington and found all these incredible things about him and his speeches about the farewell address, about what he says to his soldiers, what he says to the, to the Congress, how he speaks when he's leaving office. All the things he says about what America must do politically are, have an echo to what a human being has to do internally. There were two things that Washington, you quoted Washington on. One was the nation, I think this was in his farewell address after yeah. his second term, the nation which indulges towards another yeah. an habitual hatred or an habitual fondness is in some degree a slave. Isn't that, Isn't that relevant today? Politically and personally. Yes. That's, it echoes in both places. Yes. And then the other is guard against the impostures of pretended patriotism. Yeah. yeah. Patriotism is what? Who is it that said is the last refuge of scoundrels? Was it Samuel Johnson? I well could have been, could have been. But, but anyway, patriotism can be very dangerous. It was Samuel, I think, yeah, and yeah. it can be very beautiful. Yes, it yes. goes either way. What is patriotism to you? Well, I think it's what I'm trying to find in this book, which is a love of one must love one's country. I mean, but America, particularly, is a country founded on thought, on ideals, not ethnic. So it's not tribal, and that's, it's, that's the unique part of the uniqueness of the American experiment, is that it's, 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 a, it's an intentional nation in the way that other nations have, in any deep sense, are really not. I mean, that's okay, but, you know, there's ethnic people in Europe, of a kind of ethnic, or there's tribal things in Central Asia. Uh, in Africa, and nations come together through ethnic or other identities. But America is, at least in principle, founded on ideas. Yes. We started talking about before, about ideas, concepts of how a human life could be lived, and also a concept of the nature of the self and what we are. It's, it's almost like, it's, I think you used the term spiritual democracy, that the founding of America really was, behind it, was this spiritual dimension. I think so. The spiritual dimension. I mean, all these guys were into something. I mean, they were into masonry or whatever. Yeah. I mean, Jefferson was an incredibly religious man, spiritual man, yeah. very much his own person. I think he said, uh, "If you want to know my religion, look at my works. Mm -hmm. Look at what I do. Right. That's my, you know, that's my religion." I'm speaking with Jacob Needleman, author of *The American Soul*. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Jacob Needleman, author of The American Soul, and we're exploring 
the soul of America and hopefully re-mythologizing the founding principles of the United States of America. We're talking about Thomas Jefferson. Well, he, they wanted to be, they were, of course, it's a cliche to say it, but they wanted human life to exist free, free of any compulsion to adopt a religion. It's not only freedom to worship what you wish, but freedom from religion. Yeah, and I think it's our cultural cynicism that prevents us from seeing that because we, again, we go to the frailties of these people. Yeah. And, and so what that does is it blinds us to what really was underneath, That's right. what they really were thinking, what they were really trying to do. And it blinds us to making the, the, those images which are in us, like symbols, icons, burning in our hearts. Yes. And they could have real meaning to us, so we need to give them that meaning because they can hold it. They're there. They can. It's not like we're fabricating it, but we need to give them the meaning yes. that they could have for us. And that yes. Jefferson, particularly, has been knocked so much because of Sally Hemings and all that. But that doesn't touch me at all. I mean, you go to the to the positive side of what he did. He he articulated ideals, probably as well as anybody has in the history of this country. Probably because he saw that he didn't live up to them either. Yes. All the great. You show me one great visionary who. Their vision is sourced and almost, it cannot avoid being somewhat rooted in the perception that I myself am guilty of the thing that I wished. If you don't feel it in yourself, the, the conscience of what you are, how you are betraying something, you don't have the energy to, and anybody who comes and says, well, I'm going to give you this new vision of ideals, and they themselves aren't, they haven't seen how, what, what betraying them means, they're not going to be a genuine teacher. Yes. I'm sure the same holds true with Martin Luther King, the holds true with all Gandhi, holds true with all the great liberators. They saw that they were able to see in themselves what they wanted to fight against. So when you knock Jefferson, you're, it's not, you're, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a very heft, it's very blind to do yes. that. I mean, you've been to Monticello. Yeah. I've been to Monticello. It's an amazing place. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing it's place. It's an amazing place. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't, I didn't, why, well, why I just it, I didn't it expect it to be so amazing. I thought, okay, it's like the Grand Canyon when you, you hear about it. And you think, well, it must be great. You've seen pictures of it. But you, when you expect to go there, you expect to be disappointed. But you're never disappointed by the Grand yeah, Canyon. Right, <laughs> and, uh, exactly. Yeah. And Monticello, I expected, okay, you know, he's just an American. How, how great can it be? But it really is subtle. It's interesting. It's compact. It's a living. There's a mind on display there. Morphic energy, yeah, morphic yeah. field. Yeah. So, I, I mean, His energy is present there. Uh, yeah. I was really, the way we went there, we were both very, very touched by it. And then the University of Virginia, too. The quad. You could have done the quad, the quad and, and walked the, the dome. And the dome. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Rotunda and the University of Virginia. So Amazing. Architectural expression of an ideal of And then he built these, these homes for the faculty and the students all in the quad. Mm -hmm. I mean, his, his vision of education yeah. was like community. 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 Exactly. Exactly. It's a very different vision Beautiful of education. Vision. Very, very important. Where did education go? From vision. <laughs> Well, we got to find a way back. Yeah, we got to find a way back. Learning. I mean, Jefferson said everyone. He wanted education for everyone, every citizen. Oh, well, we it's very clear citizen. that you can't have a democracy without a deeper exactly. education. Not exactly. just not just information, and not just uh, vocational training, and not just uh, being able to operate machines or anything like that. But yes. to really, it's the development of the of the depth of the mind. How it's, can you have life without having enough food to eat? How can you have life? without having a roof over your head? How can you have life without work? How can you have liberty of 
freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of religion without having those basic things. I mean, that's what he was talking about. And the pursuit of happiness, I mean, who can pursue happiness if you're, you know, you're not getting fed, you're not, you know, you've lost the meaning, you've lost hope. These are essentials, right? They're absolutely, and we need to deepen our, really, re, our, our understanding of them needs to get deeper and deeper, what that means, you know. With like freedom of speech implies rights, that's a right, he said. But he, he didn't speak about the duties that they imply, exactly. But we can see that they imply also, and it's in there in the Constitution, in the structure of the government, yeah. freedom of speech implies a duty as well as a right. Rights imply duties. And, you know, if you don't see people march and give us back our duties, but if you don't have a duty, the right is meaningless. And the duty of freedom of speech, one of the duties that goes with it is a freedom, is the obligation to listen. And the freedom of speech also means the obligation to speak thoughtfully, to try to speak from your conscience, to try to speak from your understanding. And of course, one fails and fails. Yes. But one has to try. Freedom of speech does not mean the freedom to just say whatever the hell you feel is good. I mean, people can do it. And if you're not saying fire in a crowded theater, you're not going to be thrown into jail or anything. But it is, we've forgotten the duties that go with our rights. Yes. The ethics of... Freedom of, you know, freedom of thought, freedom to... Freedom to it, I think of Jefferson. You know, Jefferson was in Paris when the Constitution yeah. was drafted. And, and I think many Americans aren't aware that from 1783, when we signed the treaty with Britain to end the war, the Revolutionary War, then we operated under the Articles of Confederation. The colonies operated under the Articles of Confederation. And it took four years for the Constitution to come to be. Mm -hmm. And there was a great, a great dialogue and, and battles over the Constitution. And Jefferson was in France, and his, his protege, Madison, James Madison, who lived down the road from him, <laughs> from Monticello, his protege was the one who was basically, Jefferson saw the Constitution and said, well, we got to get the Bill of, we got to get those rights in there. And so that's where the Bill of Rights and the yeah. first 10 amendments to the Constitution, yeah. the Bill of yeah. Rights. Yeah. And it was Jefferson who wanted those there. And there was Alexander Hamilton saying, oh, no, they're already in the structure. They're already here. Yeah. You know, there's a different view, a different yeah. perspective. Yeah, but Jefferson was so committed to those rights because he saw them as so vitally important. You know, that's, we got to really realize that. I mean, it's again another cliche we hear in history books and stories and go to school about how important the Bill of Rights is. But how many people really feel? Like my book, when I start with this friend of mine who was a great teacher of mine with, uh, from England, a Scotsman, and he had us, we were sitting around this table out. Remember that, that opening scene of the book when he was sitting around talking about, so a lot of guys are there with me, students are there yes. knocking America. Yes. And uh, it happened to be the end of the Vietnam War. And he, and he was a wise, spiritual man. And he just looked at us very sternly and says, you don't know what you have here. And now I'm getting to realize, we have to realize what we, this is really very, very special. Very not, special. Not, I went over to, uh, I have my, I have a automobile mechanic in Oakland where I live who's Afghan. He's a, he's a philosophy professor or whatever. He's a, I walked into that shop one day and I saw the most sophisticated philosophy books as well as all the, and including my own books. Yes. And great. anyhow, I got to know him and I went over to see him. Well, we went over to see him two weeks ago to make sure he felt all right. And he gave us the most eloquent talk about America, how this is the one place in the world where his grandchildren could 
develop their humanity. And he said, so yes. hoped that America would stay America no matter what happened. Yes. So we don't know what we have here. And they don't know what it means, even that we're able to do this kind of thing. Yes. And think, we take it so for granted that we're able to think about anything, read about anything, speak as we wish, open and think together about any subject. Nothing is forbidden. That is so rare, apparently, in the history of the world. Yes. And then when you see uh, what the danger we're facing in other ways now, it's, it's, we have to hold on to it. It's, very it's all precious. more important. It's very precious. It's become, it's kind of jumped up the rung of the ladder that we have to wake up to this to these principles that I remember when I was uh, this was some years ago many years ago when I was in I just visited East Berlin for a day uh, when it was still just it was just after the war yes. it was in 1957 actually and um, I was in a bookstore there and I somebody standing next to me was looking at a book that looked interesting and I wanted to strike up a conversation I know a little German so I said is that an interesting book and I said what do you it looks interesting and he he was terrified, and he put it down. I said, "Oh my God!" It made me begin to feel, uh, you know, that we we take it so for granted, yes. you know, and anything. But it's, it's really very important, and to think together, to be able to speak together, to be able to listen together. We've abused that a lot, but yes, I had a conversation with William McDonough. He used to be the dean of architecture at the University of Virginia, now in private practice, and um, we we did a, had a dialogue at Monticello. And one of the things he said, which really struck me, was that he said, you know, this is the only place in America where it's safe to talk about sedition. <laughs> and I mean, clearly that isn't true, but, but the truth of it is metaphorically, you know, just like Barbara Lee found out, mm -hmm. uh, you know, she was accused of lots of things. She spoke out, voted against the War Powers Act. So, but it seems to me the right, the freedom that we have is a right also that comes with it, a duty comes with that. The duty comes with it. To, to, first of all, to learn to, as best you can how to think, to get informed, not just go out the latest thing on television, to yes. be able to listen to the other person, to have a, a to, to, I think Jefferson is, to me, like the chapter on Jefferson is called the communal self. He felt that the, the, the we have to think together and allow each other to think, and that will, yes. like Socrates, it will raise the level of the thought. Yeah, be so. Gary, thanks so. for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Hey, always, it's been great talking always with you. Always goes by so quickly. I've been speaking with Jacob Needleman, professor of religion and philosophy at San Francisco State University and the author of The American Soul, Rediscovering the Wisdom of the Founders. This is program number 2895. You're listening to a New Dimensions Archive Edition, recorded in 2001. Slipping, slipping into the future. 
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.